You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. This is a beautiful, beautiful site. Um, I've been, I'm really thankful to have been able to be there on opening day. Uh, and just when the church started in the Swedish hall and watching the services and watching your puppy body grow and um, it's just a beautiful thing. And now to see this and see all of you, so many of you embodying the kingdom of God in the city of San Francisco, the city where they said when the church had yet to be born, this is the city where churches go to die. And there's a work of renewal happening within this city, and you all are a beautiful part of that. So um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful sight to see. And in addition to that, just the different volunteers and leaders and pastors that really care for this church. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I want to turn to the book of Jonah and share with you from a theme that's been really special and powerful in my own life. And you can find the Old Testament prophet Jonah uh, by turning to the New Testament book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, and turning left like seven books. If you start from Genesis, you're ruined. So um, start from Matthew, turn left a few books, seven exactly, and uh, if you don't have a physical Bible or a phone app, we're going to have it on the screen as well. Um, So that makes everything I said obsolete. But um, while you're turning there, I'm going to pray because we need the presence of God. That's why we're all here, right? We're not here for the words of a man. We're here for the presence of Jesus. So let's take a moment of silence. We sit in the presence of the Most High God. You're the Good Shepherd, Lord Jesus Christ. May you lead us as a church, not just reality here in San Francisco, but the many churches within this city, that your name would become uh, well known, that Jesus, you would bring your work of kingdom renewal to this city in a powerful way during our day. And for that to happen, we need you to bring renewal into our own souls right now. So wherever we come from or wherever we are, whether we're weary or doubting or discouraged, we ask and invite you to meet us here in the name of Jesus, our Lord. And we all sit together, amen. Two years ago, when my family and I moved uh, to Boston, it's crazy how much of a journey, that concept of a journey following Jesus as a community is, isn't it? When we moved to Boston two years ago, over two years ago, you know, we had no idea what would await us there. There'd be a, a lot of times of, of, of uh, fun and excitement and, and uh, good times and new memories with my children, um, lots of snow sledding, uh, but there was a storm brewing And I'm not talking about geological storms. I'm not talking about snowstorms or rainstorms or Hurricane Sandy or or Nemo or all of that. Who's counting, right? I mean, but uh, 
those were there, but there was a spiritual and an emotional storm that was brewing that I had no idea that would await us. There were patterns of destructive thought and destructive behavior that were waiting for the right mix of chaos and pain. And as we entered into these different types of storms, of spiritual storms, there was this debris that was unearthed within my own soul. Things that I had no idea were there. Deep moments of discouragement and doubt and anger and bitterness and frustration with God at the way that life seemingly was headed. Severe and deep battles with depression and just feelings of inadequacy. And we're there to plant this church and then yet it's so hard to even want to pray during the midst of this entire time, you know? And hopefully that you'll see in this story why Jonah has become or became for me and continues to be such a powerful narrative within my own life. Because maybe like you, I thought I understood the book of Jonah. He's this 8th century prophet that is totally resistant against God and hates people. I'm not saying, I just know people like that, you know. And he's... We, we smirk at Jonah. We, we laugh at his resistance to God and I wonder how God could continue to pursue this man who continually just is angry and upset. And to some degree, we're supposed to laugh at Jonah because Jonah is written in the genre of satire. And this is one of the few satirical genres in the Bible. And yet, like any good satirical narrative, the story pulls you in. It's meant to disarm you. And just when our guard is lowered, you find yourself in the story. The storm of Jonah is a story of a man that is living a comfortable life with a comfortable spirituality until he's taken into the threshold of change. And when he stands at this threshold of change, facing the revealed will of God, he runs. He's resistant. Because although Jonah is a professional spiritual guy, although Jonah is in this spiritual world, he's around spiritual things continually, Jonah is a man who's stuck. Jonah is a man that underneath all of the waves and underneath the surface, underneath his exterior self, his interior self is full of jealousy and anger and outbursts of wrath and bitterness and chaos. And we, when he faces this revealed will of God, it's completely unearthed. And some of us find ourselves in that place today or will find ourselves there. We're stuck in patterns of destructive behavior, stuck in patterns of despair. We fear a lack of significance, so we overfunction, we overwork, either in our occupation or in religion. We're taken by our greed and our narcissism, so we're shriveled and we're discontent. We fear not being loved, so it leads us to possessiveness and perfectionism. So how do we cross this threshold of change? How do we become unstuck? Hopefully, the story of Jonah reveals to us how we can become unstuck. So we'll break it up in a few different scenes that will lead us to a, a kind of a clue of how that can begin to work in our lives, hopefully. First, verses 1 through 2, we're going to look at the word that frees us. Then verse 3, we're going to look at why we become stuck. 
verses 4 through 14, we'll look at the storm that unsticks us. Terrible English, but it works for a sermon. And verses 15 through 17, a love beneath the waves. We'll go along as we, as we continue. Verses 1 through 2 shows us the word that frees us. It says in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. This first scene of Jonah begins with God. The word of the Lord came. How does it come to Jonah? It just introduces Jonah in the midst of his life. We don't really know how it came. You know, in the Old Testament times, God was known to speak to the Hebrew people directly and through prophets. So it wasn't a big thing that God would speak, right? In the beginning of the creation narrative, however you understand creation to have, to have come into existence, I believe it to have come into existence, however it came in, that God was behind it. And he spoke something and something began. But this word is new. This word that is going to free us, it is new. Because God isn't just giving a message to his chosen people of Israel. Jewish prophets were sent to Hebrew people to convey his love and his holiness. But Yahweh right now is sending a message to pagan people. To people of all times, of all nations. And no one was more pagan and more violent than the people of Nineveh. In the land of Assyria. This is a city that is full of people that win the proverbial gold medal every year for knowing how to skin people alive and prop them on sticks so that their enemies can see the destructive powers that they have. This is a real thing within our day, isn't it? It's been in the news the last several days of, 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 of just a, a whole group of insurgents that are taking advantage of followers of Jesus in the Iraqi area, putting heads onto poles of children. This is Nineveh and beyond. These are violent people. They were horrific in the way that they tortured people. It would be the equivalent of sending a Jewish man or woman to feed Nazi German soldiers during the 1930s. Or for Sending somebody just to say, uh, somebody who currently is in Iraq, saying, here's where I want you to go. We want you to preach to these individuals. Of course it's scary, but there's something deeper at work for Jonah. But here's the message. God is sending a message to the outlaws and to the underdogs of every tribe and every nation. And here's what he's saying. You're running on a path of destruction, but I want to heal you. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's, the, it's God is breaking into the most violent of situations and putting individuals in the most heinous of scenarios and God saying, you're heading on a path of destruction, but I want to heal you. That's why Jesus says in the New Testament, are you weary, burned out in religion? Come to me and I'll give you rest from your soul, for your souls. In this world, we learn that the heart of God beats for the healing of his world. And this is an invitation to Jonah, as we're going to see in a moment. But it's also offensive to modern people. It's 
it's offensive to Jonah that God is inviting these people to a life of healing and forgiveness, but it's offensive to Jonah and it's offensive to us. Why? Notice how God says in verse 2 to Jonah, because their wickedness has confronted me. To our modern sensibilities, the word wickedness or sin seems repressive. It seems regressive. It doesn't seem like healing at all. One reason for this is because religious people, many times, and conservatives especially, have thrown around the term in condescending ways and for all the wrong reasons. But what if these words, a word like wickedness, what if that's the beginning of our healing? What if these are the words of a concerned physician, right? When you go to a physician, you don't want the physician just to tell you what you want to hear. You want them to diagnose the very root of the problem. What is withering me away? What's the cure? How can I even know? And what if the diagnosis for what is at work within us, for our own narcissism, for our own sense of of discontentment, is actually here in this word? What if this is the word of of a parent, of a father, who sees their child in a path of destruction. We've all been around or have had family members or have been the individuals who are making destructive choices, who are addicted to certain vices. And the family member or the loved one looks at them and says, I'm not going to allow you to walk on this path of destruction any longer. What if this is an honest assessment of what can cure us? Think of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And to the modern person, we might say, look at there, he's calling himself a wretch. How how condescending, how regressive. But did you know that John Newton, the author of of this song, Amazing Grace, was an 18th century slave trader? And he made a living transporting cargoes of kidnapped human beings in horrific conditions to places where children and children's children would be treated all their lives as objects bought and sold and brutalized. Maybe some of his contemporaries might have thought, oh, this is just an unrespectable occupation of good old John. But not to us. We understand that what he was committing, the crimes that he was committing, is comparable to the Holocaust. But something begins to happen to John Newton. Slowly, he becomes acquainted with the wickedness that he's creating by other believers of Christ and followers of Jesus sharing with him, this is not what God has made humanity for. You're sinning against God and you're rebelling against humanity. And slowly, he learns that something's wrong and he comes to the process where he's awakened and he repents of that very sin and he writes these words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me. But here's the problem. He wrote those words before he gave up slave trading. And yet, it was that very idea of conviction. You see, shame is, is very destructive in our lives. Shame points to the person, the entire individual. And God comes to free us from shame through the gospel message. But conviction 
can free a man from treating other people like slaves? And what if this is the first step towards a path of healing, towards becoming unstuck, and the acknowledgement of wickedness and sin doesn't just free an individual, it frees an entire community. But this word is offensive to Jonah for a different reason than our modern sensibilities. And it's a deeper reason. It's more insidious. It leads us to our second scene, why we become stuck. Verse 3 says, However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Why is Jonah stuck? Because instead of following the word that could possibly free, this partnership of God's bringing a work of renewal, Jonah chooses to flee. Unlike John Newton, Jonah has lived his life kind of in a a religious environment. Jonah would be the classic case of the homeschool child who's kind of always been around, he's been raised in the church. He's not the individual that you would expect to resist God. So what is causing Jonah to be stuck in a spiritual rut? Because when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, he doesn't just ignore it. Jonah goes in the complete opposite direction. This is a map of of 8th century uh, area of Assyria where Jonah is called to go. Um, It's not too clear. That's my fault. But notice Jonah goes 60 miles from his hometown to Joppa where the bottom right arrow is to take a ship in the complete opposite direction from Nineveh to Tarshish. It's literally the end of the known world in that time. Jonah looks at what God is calling him to do and he says, there's no way I'm doing that. Why is Jonah so full of fear? You know, I've seen time and time in my life as someone who gets up and talks about God, it's very easy for theology to become abstract, isn't it? Theology or the understanding of who God is comes to life when it's lived. Did you hear that? Theology comes to life when it's lived. You only really believe the things that you do. See, it's very easy for us to post religious quotes or spiritual sayings to Twitter or Facebook, but it's an entirely entirely other thing when we're in real-life situations where the word of the Lord runs against our own word where it runs against our own ambition. And Jonah blows apart our religious and non-religious paradigms. Because don't we typically think that there's two types of individuals in this world? There's those who are running from God and those who are running with God. But Jonah shows us that there's actually two ways that you can run from God, that you can resist God. Jonah has found it very, very easy for many, many years. And Jonah is, I believe, a historical figure as he's mentioned by both uh, in 1 Kings and by Jesus. Jonah had been a faithful prophet for many years, but on the exterior, he looks like he has it all together. But underneath, this call 
is a storm that's unearthing this debris of self-righteousness and a complete lack of grace. Why? What is the reason that Jonah runs? Most commentators say that he's afraid. But what is he afraid of? Is he afraid for his life? Maybe. But chapter 4 gives us a hint to exactly why he runs. It's not because he's afraid that he's going to die. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me. I'd rather die than live. For Jonah, the worst-case scenario has come upon him. God is asking him to go and preach repentance to these wicked, pagan people, and there's a good chance that these people will repent of their wickedness and be forgiven. And you know, I can sympathize with Jonah. Maybe God understands Jonah's struggle, even. But God wants to take Jonah through this struggle. You see, Jonah's desires are disoriented. They're disordered. Without knowing it, his nation has become more important to him than his love for God. And this is his worst fear. His worst nightmare possible is expressed when he says, you want me to go? No. If Jonah obeys, his worst nightmare will possibly become true. See, your object of true worship is on the other side of what you're saying. I'm not really going to do that when the word of the Lord enters into your life. Wherever you're saying no, wherever I am saying no, the reason for your no is what you really fear. It's what you really stand in awe of. It's, I'm not, there was a time where I felt like there was something inspiring me saying, you should, you have this older car, you're about to move, you should give this car to this person. And at first I thought, well, that's a pretty good thought, self. <laughs> and then I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever thought. That's a horrible stewardship right there. For sure that's not of God. He wants me to sell the money, pocket it, figure out how I can invest it. But do you know the truth is, my mind doesn't all naturally think, hey, you should give away this thing that you could earn money on. I don't naturally go there. It must be of the devil. <laughs> I'm thinking. And I resisted and I resisted. I'm not going to tell you whether I did it or not. It's between me and God. <laughs> but Jonah has become self-righteousness and doesn't understand grace. When God is calling him to a, a, a task in his life, he says no. When we don't understand grace, we look at others and say, how could God forgive that person? Or we look at ourselves and we say, how could God possibly forgive me? What are we saying? We're saying, I must be the saving type. Or I must not be the saving type. And don't you know that runs counterintuitive to the good news of the message of Jesus, which says, 
No one is of the saving type. Everyone is of the Nineveh type. Everyone is of the Jonah type. There's two ways to resist God, either being incredibly immoral or being a religious type like Jonah and still resisting the word of the Lord that he's calling me to live out. Both are resisting God. God's goal for you is that your will and his will would become so tightly connected that it's almost one, that our union of, with Christ would be intertwined. That when, like the marriage is the metaphor of the two becoming one flesh, it's a metaphor of your union and your relationship to Jesus, that when you come together, all things are shared. There's not a part of my closet that I say, don't talk about that, God. I can, I'm going to talk about you and I'm going to walk with you but don't talk about that thing. And we should ask ourselves this question today. Where am I running from the word of the Lord? Is God asking you to forgive someone who's wronged you? Is God asking you to share your faith with someone at school or on your neighborhood? Is God asking you to give your life in some particular way? Is he asking you to base your career on a service that's different from the lifestyle that you anticipated? To surrender certain dreams and ambitions to him? Is he asking you to base your relationships with other people and your sexual ethic on an ethic that's different from your surrounding culture or from what you typically approach life as? What is the word of the Lord coming to you saying? The revealed will. Not the one that we make up of like, I wonder what God's will is for me. Is it to be uber successful or just kind of successful? No, the one that says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. This is the will of the Lord for you. The one that says, I want you to possess your, your, your vessel, your body as glorifying to Jesus. This is the will of the Lord for you. I want you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and strength and others as yourself. This is the will of the Lord for you. All of the other stuff about future, that's applied wisdom. As Pastor Dave has been talking about, this stuff here, that's the word of the Lord for you today. And you ask yourself, where am I running from the word of the Lord? Is he calling me to repent because I'm afraid and I don't repent because what if I do it again? What if when I leave, I want to go there again? Is God asking me to put my faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? I'm going to tell you where the word of the Lord had become, begun to come to me and I, were, I continually resisted. And, and I'm not over this yet because I might resist today. It's in the area of cynicism. It's in the area where I begin to just doubt everything, everyone, and I almost find it difficult to trust, to have joy. And you know, even this morning, God was, there was time, I was spending time just, I felt like the presence of grace coming upon me and the word of the Lord speaking to me. But I find myself wanting to go back and get stuck again. In many other areas, other ways, but the funny thing is, is that Jonah is in ministry so that he can see the lives of others change. But you know what? God is interested in changing the life of the minister. 
all of you in this room as followers of Jesus have been entered into ministry. All of you, the, the New Testament John says, have been anointed for a task. Sons and daughters of God. We're all ministers. And there's as much happening in your life right now as in what you're trying to do for the sake of the kingdom of God. Did you know that God is so interested in what's happening in you? He cares about you. He's wanting you to become unstuck, to mature, to grow. That's his goal for you. It's his passion for you. It's his passion to see you become conformed to the will of God. But Jonah flees Tarshish. Why did Tarshish? Because Tarshish in the ancient world is a place of comfort and distraction. We should ask ourselves this other question. Where do I flee? Where do I run for comfort and distraction? Is comfort bad? No, comfort can be a great gift. My family and I enjoyed, enjoyed a week's vacation last week at a very comfortable spot. It was amazing at a lake in New Hampshire. It was beautiful. We need to work from a place of rest. We need times of retreat. We need times of comfort. But do we ever run from the word of the Lord to another place that distracts me, that's comfortable? Social scientists are saying that the modern form of comfort is just pulling the phone out and flipping through. That there's the same type of effect that happens within the brain for the person who pulls out their phone as somebody who wants a fix of heroin and just says, ah, is there something here? What if we stopped and we began to take assessment and say, why am I feeling this way? I can't get there. That leads us to our third place, our third scene, verse 4. Jonah boards this ship to Tarshish. It, he actually, some commentators say, he chartered the boat. Jonah wasn't just like, well, if it's God's will, maybe I'll jump on the ship. Jonah rolls in like he's in a hip-hop video and says, boat's on me, guys. I got this one. We're all heading to Tarshish. Maybe, maybe not a hip-hop video. <laughs> maybe Puff Daddy. And he knows that this is not typical. Why? The Hebrews feared the sea. They were incredibly afraid of the ocean. For them, it was the place of the deep shale, the place of death. And Jonah's willing to run to a place of death rather than to follow the leading of God. Why? Because when we run from God, we run to the most unlikely places, don't we? We run to the most craziest sources. But God does something. God pursues this resistant person. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord hurled a violent wind onto the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. I love that. Because it almost sounds like the ship's like, Hey, Jonah, anytime I'm going to break apart. You know, like, it's just threatening. Here's what we understand. You have to know this. Not every, sto every storm in life is a form of correction. Not every time that we're facing a storm in life, is that a form of correction? Jesus said this, right? When the apostles said, 
hey, who sinned, this man or his parents, when they came across an individual that was handicapped? Jesus said, neither. He was born this way in in, in a fallen world, but I'm going to use his handicap and his brokenness and his weakness for the glory of God. Not every storm in life is a storm of correction, but God is bringing this storm, and there are particular storms that come into life as form of correction. Why? Because God chastens those that he loves. And he chastens every son or daughter that is a follower of him. Dave and I were sitting in his living room this morning and he was reading a passage from Isaiah. And as he read it, I sensed the the same type of conviction from the word of the Lord begin to well up within me in certain areas. God begins to talk to us and say, here's where I want to heal you. And we have the opportunity whether we're going to run or not. And if we choose to run, God is a faithful father who will bring correction to his children. The same word hurled here is the same word of a, word of a man who's hurling a spear in the Old Testament. And somebody might say, well, what a capricious God. But no, think deeper. God is doing something far more merciful here. God doesn't need Jonah Isn't it crazy how much God pursues this man? He goes to great lengths in saying, I want you to participate in my work of renewal, Jonah. And not only that, but I want to do a work in renewal in your own heart. And Jonah enters this storm, which is a necessary part of maturity to our interior transformation. See, God is leading Jonah and these men through the dark night of the soul. And when first moving to Boston, I wasn't understanding this, right? Because when we talk about God and the blessings of God, we often don't associate that with trouble or with trial or sorrow or pain. But do you know that it's in the times of the storm that we learn a deeper sense of trust in God? We have a deeper understanding not only of God, but of self. Pete Scazzaro, who uh, authored the book Emotionally Healthy Church, has this diagram. And he says that, you know, the all necessary process of maturity in spiritual life goes through this process at many, many different points in life. We go through this life-changing awareness of God, right? Happened for me 15, 17 years ago at the age of 21 or later. And... Um, And at that age, just the life-changing awareness of God. And then we move to the second stage, which is this discipleship where we begin to learn about God or learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus and become a part of the Christian community. We're rooted in the disciplines of faith, like reading the Bible and praying and learning that God speaks to us in Scripture. We get involved in Christian community. And then we become active in the Christian life, right? We start to serve God and serve other people and see our work and vocation as ways that we can bring renewal into the world. But there's another stage called the wall. Some of you are there right now. It's this threshold of transformation where we have this inward journey that compels us to take stock and ask the deep questions of life like, Why am I going through this? Why do I struggle so much to be joyful? Why do I struggle with contentment, with loving others, with being fully present with my wife or husband or my children? These are questions that I ask myself at times. 
And then if we go through this wall, though, we understand that this is what God's taken us through, this process, and we embrace this process, having passed through the wall, we begin to enter into the Christian life or following Jesus outwardly with a different sense of, I'm no longer serving Jesus and people to get something. It's now out of the sheer joy and sheer understanding of, man, if you have the words of eternal life, where else am I going to go? I'm just going to follow you. I'm going to serve you. And this leads to a transformed life. And we're always entering into this. And this is what these sailors on this boat begin to enter into. Notice verse 5 through 6. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. This storm is raging on this ship. They're crying out for fear. But meanwhile... Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and stretched out and fallen asleep into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing asleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us who's to blame for this trouble that we're in. What's your business? Where are you from? What country are you from? And which people? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. Man, I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Like you guys have gods of the sea and gods of the... I worship the God who made the sea. And then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of God because he told them. And so they said to him, What should we do to, to you to calm the sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And Jonah answers them in verse 12 saying, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so it may quiet down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that is against you. Here's what I'm beginning to realize. That the sooner that I jump into the water of the storm in my life, that I begin to see, wait, but why am I feeling anxious? that I trace those emotions back to their root source, that the sooner that I begin to say, okay, just throw me into this thing. I want to jump in. Or I ask friends, as I have been the past couple of days, and saying, hey, there's this thing happening within me. What do you think is going on here? Like the prayer of examine. You know, I, I ask these questions with my kids before we go to bed, particularly on times of vacation. What am I most thankful for today? What am I least thankful for today? What did I find life-giving? What am I most fearful of? When I begin to follow the root source, that, that, those questions back to their source, I begin to see patterns and areas where maybe the word of the Lord is changing me. And the faster that I say, okay, I'm just going to just throw me into this thing, the faster that I realize that God is pursuing me in this storm. That God has grace to show me beneath these waves. Why would we do this? Why would we embrace the pain, jump into the water? For Jonah, it's a moment of despair. He's looking at these men who are basically not followers of Yahweh. And they're saying, hey, why don't you pray, man? You're a prophet. Pray to this God. And their lives are becoming into a a life-changing awareness of God. But to Jonah, he's sleeping through the storm. I wonder if any of us here are sleeping through our pain. We're just trying to numb it. 
We're just trying to crash out in the middle of it. And maybe God is bringing brand new transformation into our life through this. In a moment, we're going to have a chance to examine that. But why would we jump into the water? This leads us to our last and our final area. It's because beneath the waves, we find the love that we search for. See, beneath these waves are the everlasting love of God. Beneath the waves and the storm and what looks so chaotic in his life is a God who's pursuing him. You remember Peter in the New Testament? He sees Jesus walking on water towards him and he cries out to him they, for fear that it's a ghost at first. But then this man Peter says, but Jesus, if it's you, call me and I'll walk to you on this water. And he gets out of the boat and he begins to walk to Jesus on the water. And then he realizes, I'm walking on water. And he sinks and he fears But as he's falling into the waves, he cries out and says, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs him by the hand, powerful and yet honest and truthful, saying, why did you fear? Where is your faith? Don't you know who I am? That underneath these waves are the everlasting love of God. See, the more that we look beneath the waves, the more that we'll run to God rather from God. Verse 12 says, He answered them, pick me up and throw me in the sea. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. And then they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, Now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. Now, I believe this is a historical thing, but even if you don't believe that, you have to draw the parallel. And here's the parallel. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus refers to this verse, and he says to religious men, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah's here. You see, Jesus is saying what we understand about all of Scripture all of it is pointing to Christ. All of it is pointing to his redemptive work in our lives. Him coming into our lives and doing something powerful. Why is Jesus the greater than Jonah? Why does he call himself the greater than Jonah? It's because that when Jesus enters this world, it shows us that whereas Jonah was reluctant to bring the word to wicked people, John tells us that the word became flesh. And lived among wicked people. The word put on skin. And lived amongst people like you and I. Who are resistant to God's word. Unlike Jonah. Christ accepts the mission to preach to the runners. The outlaws. And the underdogs of society. 
And unlike Jonah, Jesus accepts the mission and doesn't turn back and run away from us, but instead runs to us. But Jesus Christ doesn't just come to preach a word. He becomes this dying word in our place. And he comes to receive the wrath of God. And Jesus doesn't just tell people, throw me in. You can picture Jonah clumsily being kind of shucked into the water, one leg on the side of the boat. He's kind of clumsily hanging off. And then they, they throw off the other side. Jesus Christ jumps into the water of death, shale, the rage of God, the storms. And he receives the full punishment and the wrath of God for you and for I. That's what this message is pointing to. Jesus is skinned alive so that you can have new life through faith in him. So that in Hebrews 13, it says that we can run this life of faith with endurance. It says in Hebrews, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses of these prophets surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Not running away, but running with endurance. How? Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. This is the message that affected John Newton. This is the message that caused one man to stop his profession that he was earning lucrative amounts of money and say, I can't do this to God and I can't do this to humanity. And this is why Jonah has meant so much to me personally. I've been called Jonah in the past two years by friends. I've told God, if I had a ship to Tarshish right now, I would take it. But you know what I'm learning more and more? I'm realizing that beneath the waves, beneath the storm, is the everlasting love of God. The God who plunges himself into the water to come after me, to free me, to help me to become unstuck, and that he's very patient. Our Father, we thank you for your words to us. They're words of life. They're completely unlike the gods that we would construct for ourselves. It's a God of patience and endurance. We pray, Father, that now as we examine our, ask you to examine our souls, we want to encounter the love of Christ that transforms a man who trades slaves and a man who runs away. We ask this now as we respond to you and to your grace in the name of our most high Savior, Jesus. Amen.